0: Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Hey guys, before we start today's podcast, I want to share some of the exciting news with you about my forthcoming trip to the US to launch my US. Editions of my cookbooks. Now, as you may well know, I am going to be touring around the country doing multiple events. If you would like to know more about the events that I will be um, involved in, you can head to my website thehealthygut.co forward slash events, and there you will see the listing of my events as they become available. Now I am um, very busily locking them all in, but I can share with you the data that I will be in each city. So, LA, I'm going to be with you on the 19th and 20th of June. San Francisco, I'm with you on the 21st and 22nd of June. Portland, I'm with you for a whole weekend and we have some amazing things organised with Eight Hearts Medical Centre and I'll be there from the 23rd of June, um, leaving on the morning of the 27th of June. Seattle, I'm coming to you and I will be there on the 27th until the 30th of June. And Phoenix, I'm also going to be with you for quite a long time. I'm there for nearly a week, which is really exciting. So I'm going to be there from the 11th till the 16th of July. Now I am locking in dates and venues in some other cities so do stay tuned in the coming weeks as they become available. In Portland we have some really great events coming out. We're looking at cooking demonstrations, live podcast recordings, SIBO workshops and more with Eight Hearts Medical Centre. If you would like to attend one of these events or any of the other events in the other cities, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash events and make sure that you submit your details because it will be first in first served we won't have unlimited capacity for these events so I do hope that I get to see as many of you as I can and do list the order of preference of which events you would prefer to come to the most out of all of them so I can make sure that we hopefully can get a ticket for you. And if you know anybody who would be interested in joining forces with me to put on an event in your local city or have me as a guest speaker come and speak to you in your local city, do let me know. Simply drop me an email at rebecca at thehealthygut.co. Now, the other exciting news is all around my US editions of my cookbooks. The digital cookbooks are currently available and they're emailed to you immediately upon purchase. So that means you can get them via email. But the printed cookbooks are now available to pre-order, which is super exciting. It does mean you will get an edition straight off the press, so to speak, when they become available from the printers and they should be dispatched in the next... next couple of weeks. So if you would like more information on either the e-cookbooks or the printed cookbooks and you are based in the US or Canada, then head to sibocookbooks.com and you will find more information there and how you can order a copy for yourself. Here's today's episode. Welcome to episode 32 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today I'm joined by Dr. Anthony Hobson, who is an internationally renowned British consultant clinical scientist with experience across the NHS and private healthcare sectors, as well as in academia and the pharmaceutical industry. He has a broad base of experience in assessing gut function from top to bottom, covering areas such such as gastroesophageal reflux disease irritable bowel syndrome, incontinence and constipation. He has been recognised as advancing the field of GI physiology by winning several prestigious awards and has published over 200 journal articles, abstracts and book chapters including two first author publications in gastroenterology. A frequent speaker at conferences around the globe about advances in GI physiology, Dr Hobson also provides lectures to train UK doctors to help them understand more about the applications of GI physiology testing. Today we talk about why gut function is so important and why we should be looking at the entire GI tract rather than just one section of it. We also talk about transit times and how we can test our own transit time and also looking at bowel retraining and long-term implications for people with IBS and SIBO. And we talk about why the UK is behind in its awareness of SIBO and other GI issues and what people can do uh, who are based in the UK or perhaps anywhere else in the world who are experiencing difficulties finding a practitioner that knows much about GI issues or SIBO and what you can do about it. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr Anthony Hobson. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast dr anthony hobson it's so wonderful to have you on the show and i finally have uh, a doctor um, from the uk appearing on the healthy gut podcast so i'm really excited about that so thanks for coming on
1: thanks for inviting me
0: my pleasure um i'd love to talk about how you ended up being a gastrophysiologist with an interest in the whole gastrointestinal um system uh and uh and yeah Tell us how you got to where you are today.
1: Uh, By accident, mainly. Um, My two loves when I was at school were sports and science. And um, I really would have liked to have been a footballer or maybe a golfer. But um, when I became apparent that that wasn't going to happen at the ages of about 18 or 19, then um, I wanted to look at something that, um, you know, really stretched me in terms of, of science. And there was a scheme at the time, a training scheme, um, which meant that you worked in hospitals uh, for three days of the week with patients, and uh, whilst then attending university and, and doing academic work. Um, and the physiology um, pathway was respiratory, cardiology, and strangely enough, gastrointestinal. And I think I was probably the first student to go through the gastrointestinal pathway. And that was back in, in 1991. And the thing that appealed to me was that the hospital I worked at said that they would support me not only for the first four years, uh, which we needed to qualify, but beyond that, to go on to do a master's and PhD and, and you know, work in academic institutions, publish papers. And um, that was a really appealing um, you know, set of qualifications for me to get. So it was a bit by accident, um, but we fell into it and had some great support up in Manchester. And uh, Professor David Thompson, who was one of the leading, world-leading neurogastroenterologists at the time, was uh, incredibly supportive. So uh, that's how I got into it.
0: Wonderful. And it's, uh, it's lucky for the world that you did. You were recently, uh, or somewhat recently, out in the States... Um, uh, speaking at the Cedar sinai SIBO event. And, uh, and I know that um, from um, – unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend. I would have loved to have been there, but there was definitely a lot of interest in, in what you were saying. And, uh, and I hope that you enjoyed being out there as well.
1: Well, for that actual event, I was um, speaking to them from where I am now today in the UK, but I followed that event up and went to spend some time at Cedar sinai and just talk through some of the issues um, that were discussed during that day, just so I felt comfortable and up-to-date with what was happening in the U.S. There's a big effort in the U.S. to, to develop a consensus around SIBO, and uh, you know I want to try and spread that message in the U.K. So um, it was fantastic to spend uh, a day with uh, Mark Pimentel and uh, Ali Rizai. Um, and we spent uh, a couple of days talking about our own research that we've just finished in in the UK. So that was a really good opportunity to be out there and I hope to go again soon.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, One of the things that that I... I know firsthand um, from my own experience of living in the UK for seven years was um, the fact that uh, experiencing digestive discomfort, and now that I know it was SIBO that I was experiencing, it just wasn't even on the radar, even... um, Getting the classification of irritable bowel syndrome wasn't even really talked about, um, and I was in—I was there for the majority of the um, two thousands, two thousand and one to two thousand and eight. Um, it was really difficult to get any kind of support around gut you know, gut health and gut function. I hope that it has improved from when I was there. Uh, but, but what's your take on on how things are going in the UK in terms of medical support for people suffering from gastrointestinal uh, disorders and distress?
1: It's a bit of a perfect storm, to be honest, in that gastroenterologists in the UK at present don't actually have functional bowel disorders as part of their training so they get trained in nutrition and endoscopy and inflammatory bowel disease, but there's no formal module about IBS or, or other functional symptoms. So anything they pick up is usually, if they work in a hospital that has a special interest in it, um, or you know if they, they have a special interest in, and seek it out. So even though 40 to 50% of the patients that they see will have these disorders, um, it's, it's amazing that there isn't any formal training but we are trying to change that. So I sit on the NeuroGastro Committee representing GI physiologists for the the BSG. And recently we held an event, it was a kind of a trial event in uh, the Midlands um, to get trainee gastroenterologists uh, to focus more on functional disorders, how to diagnose them, how to treat them. And it was incredibly successful. So there's about 25 young trainee doctors and they were the feedback was amazing from them you know why haven't we had this before so we are making some progress now a kind of national level to try and improve that training pathway and offer those courses and we're going to take that training program around the uk so that more people can experience it and hopefully officially slot it into the to the bsg which is the british society of gastroenterology uh, training program so We're starting from a quite a low level, which is amazing to me, Um, but we are putting things in place to try and improve that.
0: Uh, I'm so excited to hear that and that will just benefit so many people uh, so that, you know, when they do go to their doctors or their gastroenterologists that uh, they're hopefully in the future getting some answers as to what's going wrong. Can you just give a description around what um, is a functional disorder of the GI tract?
1: So, most doctors will want to rule out something structural or inflammatory. So, if there's going to be something like a diverticulitis or um, pseudo obstruction or inflammatory bowel disease, that's what they'll test with endoscopy and stool tests and and, and so forth. And when all of that comes back normal, then the diagnosis is a functional one. And, And what does that mean? I mean, functional has a bad press, but you know, for us, we think a functional diagnosis is, is a positive step uh, to the pathway to, to good treatment. Um, so the analogy I always use is that the car looks nice, but it's not driving very well. Um, and therefore, you have to do complementary tests that measure how the gut is functioning, as opposed to just looking for inflammatory events that, that can be treated. So um, that requires... Um, the use of new technologies to look at digestive function, to look at motility, to look at pH profiles. And that is complementary to what you can see with tests like endoscopy.
0: And I think that um, it's great seeing the, the tests uh, and the science that's evolving for in order for us to really explore more around the function of the gut. And um, There's something that I was reading on your website, which is around understanding um, gut function and the importance of looking at the entire GI tract rather than perhaps just one element of it. Can you sort of further elaborate on why we should be looking at the entire GI tract?
1: Well, the gut's not very good at telling you what's wrong. The symptoms that you get from the gut are quite vague. So, um, you know, bloating can be caused by issues in the stomach. It could be due to SIBO. It could be due to constipation and colonic issues. The way people tell you about their symptoms is not always uh, a good pointer in the right direction for a diagnosis. So, you know, if somebody turns up to us with heartburn and regurgitation, which responds to antacid therapy uh, and no other symptoms, then you're pretty certain that they've got reflux and just by measuring the reflux and looking at their esophageal function is probably enough but more and more people come to us and say well we have reflux but we also have bloating we have altered bowel habit we have all these different things going on so at that point you need to build up a little portfolio of tests to answer all the questions if you take reflux disease for example um, you know lots of these people have been on proton pump inhibitors for a long time Uh, that Affects how um, you know the bacterial load in the gut and can lead to things like SIBO. And they are going to surgeons to have anti-reflux surgery to you know correct their hiatus hernia or uh, you know get them off PPIs and, and resolve their esophagitis. But after surgery, they still have all their digestive symptoms that, that are below this. The surgery is not a magic bullet; it will only fix the reflux. So what we try and do is classify patients' symptoms, uh, sort of top to bottom pre-surgery uh, and then that might helps to manage the expectations of patients saying you know we can have this treatment for the reflux but everything else lower than that will need to be treated in a separate way and that helps to um, especially you know after surgery to make sure that they don't go back to the surgeon they may go to the dietitian or gastroenterologist and have the digestive issues uh, sorted out separately so it's that kind of um, approach to look at things holistically and manage everyone's expectations and then target treatment to the different aspects of the patient's um, abnormalities.
0: What are some of the um, ways in which you can assess the function of the gut from top to bottom?
1: The technology is truly amazing now. So everything that we thought was going on, we can now see in great detail. So things like high-resolution esophageal manometry, Uh, with a combined impedance recording allows you not only to look at the muscle function and swallowing function of the esophagus, but also looks at the functional consequences of that. So you can see the, the swallowed material going down. It's like a virtual bearing swallow. You can see whether patients are regurgitating in patterns of things like rumination syndrome. And it's very important when you're doing these tests that you can give this visual feedback to patients, especially if there are behavioral issues. Uh, so you can help them to come up with mechanisms to stop that happening, or even just explaining the, the physiology of, of what's happening with their symptoms. You know, showing them that the acid reflux is coming up, how high it's coming up, how it correlates with what they're feeling, is really powerful. Uh, and things that uh, we can now do in the lower bowel. So, for instance, with techniques such as Smart Pill, um, again, uh, uh, giving us insights into things that we thought were going on but were very, very difficult to study um, in the past. So all of that is now becoming very achievable for us.
0: One of the things I realised when I went through my own um, experience with SIBO was how little I knew about the digestive tract. I obviously knew that, you know, there was a mouth and an esophagus, the food travelled down and a stomach. I knew that there was an intestinal system, but I didn't really know much about it. And it was only because of SIBO that I started to educate myself about this actually very amazing, incredible system that most of us, I think, just are completely unaware of. Do you find that um, – do your patients come in with um, minimal awareness around what the digestive system does uh, and that they're able to learn more about it or are they already coming in very educated and and that these technologies are able to then just uh, give them an extra level of awareness?
1: we definitely get people at all points of the spectrum. So we get people who have absolutely no idea what's going on and are kind of extremely worried because every time they eat something they feel like they've been poisoned and the more healthy food they eat, the worse they feel. And and they just don't understand this relationship between what's going on in their digestive tract, what they're eating and what they're feeling. Um, So they're starting at a point of, of kind of virtually zero knowledge. And then we get patients who um, have looked up things on the, on the internet, who've read the papers, who've read the books um, and come in very well informed. Of course the problem with that is that some of the stuff that you can read and pick up um, is not actually true. <laughs> so we um, it can be quite challenging to um, debunk the myths and of course we don't have all the answers. We have to be very careful that anything that we talk to patients about Uh, Anything that we do regarding testing is based on the best practice and and what is proven and we're constantly updating our uh, methods and uh, the the way we do things uh, to make sure that we are applying what is universally or at least the the consensus is the right thing to do. And we're very open to add things and to take things away when, when those things are either proven or debunked. So, it's a bit of a partnership, really. Um, we're there to try and help educate patients um, and also with the clinicians that, that send patients to us. Um, so, when we do our reports, for instance, we try and be as helpful as we can to answering the questions that are most important to patients uh, and also to try and guide um, the doctors into, you know, if they're not fully aware of, of, of what the results mean, to try and help support them and educate them as well. So. It's a real team effort between us all to try and move this field forward because there are certain things that are well accepted and there are things that are in development and I think we have to all move in that direction.
0: I've, I know that for many of my listeners, and, and I fell into this category myself, that once I became aware of my condition, I went a bit obsessively onto the internet to research everything I could about SIBO and, and my gut and all the rest. Um, and one of the things I realised was there was a lot of uh, mis or half-truths <laughs> or misinformation and half- half-truths out there, blogs written uh, by people that had kind of taken an element of, of something and perhaps interpreted themselves. What are some of the myths that, that – um, your patients might read or or see on the internet that you just it drives you crazy that you'd love to debunk
1: so it's hard enough to get a consensus about SIBO Um, and for me looking at it from a physiology point of view it makes perfect sense that some people will have gastroenteritis or be on um, proton pump inhibitors and have bacteria in their small bowel that interferes with their, their digestion so the gut bacteria start to break things down before they have chance to digest it. That makes sense to me. I can I can understand how that works. But even that, um, is, is a lot of gastroenterologists struggle to um, see that that's a condition. And I think that's because the methods of testing have been seen as unreliable and the methods of treatment um, are, are not easy. But the things that drive me a little bit mad, um, because it's very hard to prove them. And I am taking steps to try and um, alleviate this. The three things that people will come to see me about will be leaky gut, low stomach acid, and candida. And these things tend to take hold and they may may well be true. You know, gut permeability may be changed in some people. Um, and people may be producing less stomach acid and some people may have candida, but it's very hard to, to test those things. So, that's The thing that, that, that makes it difficult for me because I don't yet have the tools at my disposal to test those things objectively. But we are working on things looking at gut permeability. Uh, the smart pill test allows us to look at acidification of a meal, which is, um, you know, a, a kind of surrogate for what used to be done with things like the Heidelberg test. Um, and, and, and obviously, working on new tests to look at, at things like candida, so those things are the bits that, that make it very difficult for me is if I don't have the tools to actually um, prove that these things are going on in patients or, um, or, or not. So, so, you know, it's a 3 strand approach is trying to work with the conventional um, tools that we've got and, and prove that they work to the clinicians uh, and then look at other things that are important to patients and, and try and develop those tools.
0: And there's definitely a lot out there on the the internet around leaky gut and low stomach acid. It's interesting um, seeing the ebbs and flows of interest on topics uh, and the um, very large SIBO Facebook group at the moment. I just seem to be noticing a lot of posts from people around, I think my stomach acid is low and that's why I've got SIBO. (laughs) So it's interesting that you raise this as one of your things. You're like, ah. Yeah, it kind of
1: makes sense to, to a lot of people. But so, so there was a paper that came out um, a couple of years ago, which looked at giving a nutritional drink um, and smart pill, and then looking at how quickly that uh, meal is acidified as a, as a function of stomach acid output. Um, and so we, we've looked at this paper, and we've looked at these things ourselves. And we definitely see a proportion of patients in whom the period where the gastric pH is high after you've eaten a meal is, is different to, to normal subjects. And this should be a, a function of stomach acid output. So we're, we're quite keen now to uh, push that forward um, and, and do some validation work around it because um, it could be a method of, uh, you know, a reason why people get SIBA because they're not producing enough stomach acid. But I'm a scientist, so I want to be able to prove that. So um, we're, we're making some progress on that area. And likewise, with, with gut permeability and leaky gut, Uh, We're working with a company down in the south of England at the moment that have a test for this. Um, And, you know, if we can put together a a research program where we can look at the relationships between these things, then um, that will help us to have the confidence that this is actually a phenomenon. But in a lot of patients, the reason that people feel they've got a leaky gut is actually because the gut's a bit hypersensitive. And the gut is very good at protecting itself. Um, so, you know, unless you've got some over-inflammation down there, the chances of increased gut permeability are, are quite, quite slim.
0: A test that I did when I was, actually after I had completed my SIBO treatment and I had got my all-clear um, result, uh, was my naturopath suggested that we test for gut permeability. And, and something that we did, um, which I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, was I drank a um, liquid solution that then measured the particles that came out through through my urine, which I collected over a 12 or 24-hour period, I can't remember now exactly, and sent it off for analysis. And based on the size of the particles found in my urine, um, that then was to determine how um, permeable my gut lining was. Is that test something that, you know, is that even done in the UK? Um, And what are your thoughts on that test?
1: It's a test that was done, um, it is done in the UK. And um, there's a very eminent gastroenterologist, Robin Spiller, who did a lot of work in this um, in the 90s. Um, So I think it is a valid test to do because obviously the different sized particles um, tell you, what's passing through the gut lining, going into the bloodstream and then being excreted. So I think it is a valid test uh, to do, um, but I don't think there are enough um, sort of big-scale clinical trials that have been done to look at the relationship between that gut permeability and things like SIBO and, and, and other symptoms. And that's the kind of thing that we will be looking to do over the next couple of years.
0: I think there's so many um, studies and research uh and a lot of research that it will be so welcome when it's done to either um, prove or disprove some of these theories and and just having some more science around it, I think can only be beneficial. We've talked a little bit about the smart pill and I'd I'd really love for you to share with the listeners around what it is in case anyone listening has never heard of it before and how it works.
1: So this is quite an old technology back in the, um, even in sort of the 60s and 70s, people were swallowing these capsules on the ends of pieces of string. Um, And basically the capsule measures three things. It measures temperature, and that just tells us when it's in the body and out of the body. So that's kind of a, a safety measure. It measures pH, so it looks at the acidity profiles throughout the gut, and it measures pressure. So you can look at contractions and different patterns of contractions. And it was my colleague, Mark Scott, who had uh, done some of the validation work um, when they were developing this new version of the capsule um, that, that brought this to my attention. And previously, if you wanted to look at these things, it would take many, many hours. You would have to do um, some radiological exams. You would have tubes, in, and you know, it would be really unpleasant to get all this information. Where with the smart pill, what you do is you eat a test meal, uh, which in most cases is a cereal bar full of all sorts of nasty sugars and, and things like that. Um, and then you swallow the capsule. And then that gives you some information about, as I said before, how the stomach acidifies a meal, so how it behaves when it's got food in it. And then as the food uh, gets liquefied and empties into the small bowel, then you start to get the um, stomach's natural contractions, so the cleaning contractions called migrating motor complexes, and they start to come into play. So it tells us something about fasting activity, and it's only when those big contractions come that the uh, capsule can be pushed out of the stomach into the small bowel. And then it traverses through the small bowel um, and the small bowel has the highest pH in the body. So by the time it reaches the uh, distal small bowel, then the pH is usually about 7.5 to eight. And then the really interesting thing for me, which has been the focus of my research recently, is what happens when it pops into the proximal colon, so into the cecum. So the cecum is this kind of second stomach where all our undigested material goes and bacteria ferment all this undigested material and we get some nutritional benefit from that. It keeps the gut healthy. When it becomes excessive, that's when you get all of these symptoms of bloating, distension, loose bowel motions. Um, And we've really not been able to look at that before. And my research recently has really shown that this is a problem in patients with Uh, bloating, uh, distension, loose bowel motions, SIBO and our recent clinical trial which is just being um, analysed at the moment uh, has has reinforced how important that is and then once this proximal colon issue has resolved then the capsule moves through the colon um, and tells us whether the transport through the colon is normal as well so that can pick up things like slow transit constipation um, for example so it's a really simple test. As long as you can swallow the capsule, which is quite big, it's like a big um, vitamin capsule. Once you've swallowed it, you clip on a little um, recording box and, and you go out of the unit and have your normal activities. So it's quite a physiological test in that people are in their own environments. And most people pass it within one to two days, but I think the record for us was nine days of a, a lady who was uh, just trying to prove the point that she was really constipated. So. The capsule can last for up to 16 days, but after about three or four days, we usually get people to take a, a gentle laxative if they're not past it naturally. So it's been a really useful tool for us, and we've published quite a few papers on it. And our recent clinical trial, uh, we've just had a couple of abstracts accepted, both for the Digestive Diseases Week in, in America and in uh, the BSG in, in, uh, in the UK. So we're making progress with that.
0: It's so interesting and it just makes me think of uh, when you I know, was a child and seeing all this kind of science fiction stuff <laughs> and now it's a reality, which is wonderful. So is it is this going to be the new way of testing for the migrating motor complex?
1: Well, there are pros and cons to Smart SmartPill. Because it's not a fixed point, then um, it basically is a bit like a surfboard In the stomach, it picks up the migrating motor complexes really quite nicely because it's trapped within the stomach at that point. Um, But if you, say, for instance, have a catheter in the small bowel, you can look at the patterns of migrating motor complexes in much more detail. So that would still be the gold standard. If you thought that somebody had disordered small bowel motility, then putting a tube in, having it fixed, looking at a section of the small bowel and looking at the frequency of migrating motor complexes would be the preferred method albeit a little bit unpleasant. Um, but what you can certainly do is to see these patterns of contractions, whether there are more contractions or less um, in, in patients. Um, you know, do So when you eat something for example you should get a different pattern of, of contractility so we can pick that up and again we're just finishing a, a really big study in about 200 healthy subjects looking at these patterns of contractility so we can compare with our abnormal database. So I don't there are limitations to what smart pill can do uh, but I like to think that we are validating the, the things that we can do with it to an extent where we'll be able to look at different patterns of contractions um, so you know if people have too few contractions or too many contractions how that correlates with with symptoms all of that data we're trying to extract from our, our database at the moment
0: and I found it very interesting um, listening to you talk about the um the area of the large intestine that acts like a second stomach and that that can often be a, a problem area for people that are experiencing a lot of gas. Um, and it was also, uh, I think you said, diarrhoea.
1: Yeah, so this, I'd never really, I mean, my first part of my career was been looking at upper gut function and looking at how the stomach works and how reflux comes up into the esophagus and how it's cleared and how things are empty from the stomach. And I've never really given any consideration to the cecum. It's just this kind of slightly dilated part of the colon. Um, It's got an appendix just wobbling at the bottom a bit. And I don't think anybody really, because it's quite hard to get to. I don't think many people have given it much thought. But um, if you think about what happens, say, for instance, with people with lactose malabsorption, the lactose should be cut in half by the enzyme lactase and get absorbed in the small bowel. But if you don't produce enough lactase, then this, um, this sugar gets into the proximal colon where there's huge numbers of bacteria. And if you can imagine, I always think of this idea of like a demijohn of wine brewing in the corner. You have this body temperature bag of liquid with sugar and bacteria in it bubbling away inside you, producing who knows what kinds of chemicals and, and other things uh inside and, and the bowel is going to get upset from that uh, in, in many cases and that's why um it comes to this point where if it can't absorb any of those sugars or break them down sufficiently then people will have diarrhea and loose bowel motions and it will be the same with fructose malabsorption. Um, for example, and, and these things will be affected by things like SIBO which increase uh, or, or speed up small bowel transit, so things you would normally digest end up in the, in the proximal colon. So I remember speaking to um, a colonic hydrotherapist who um, have, they often have really nice insights into um, patients and they described this kind of fluid that came out as a, a witch's brew, like a cauldron of, of kind of loose bowel motion. That's going on inside it, and it's it's really not surprising that people feel really quite unpleasant when they eat these things because you will be absorbing some of these um, you know products of fermentation, and you've got a rich bagel innovation of the proximal colon, which will be making you feel fatigued and nauseous. So it's really become a focus of my research now to try and understand more what is going on in that region and how we can modify. Uh, these processes to improve symptoms in patients and that's what our last clinical trial was all about. I
0: I can just visualize this kind of as you said this body temperature (laughs) area of it's just you know particularly if you haven't been able to break down lactose and it's the bacteria fermenting and they're having a wonderful time eating all of these sugars that are coming through and you can just visualize this kind of bubbling pot. And you
1: know (laughs) what what trying to use my upper GI knowledge for lower GI reasons. This this is where we came up with this idea of, um, you know, reflux of colonic contents going into the distal small bowel, causing, being another cause of bacterial overgrowth. Um, And what seems to happen is that if you put short chain fatty acids, which are the byproduct of fermentation into the colon, it slows down colon transit because the body's trying to absorb these things. But when it gets to a certain point, um, they can't absorb any more. That's when you start to increase the osmotic load in the colon. And that's when you trigger the the loose bowel motions. So I'm trying to think of of what's happening down there as reflux disease for the lower GI tract. And once I have that model in my mind, then it gives me uh, methods of what we can measure, but also how we can try and improve clearance. So what can you do to... To reduce this fermentation and, and reflux? How can you improve the clearance from the small bowel into the colon and, and onwards? And that's the kind of model that we're working on at the moment is, uh, you know, can we do this with diet? Do you need to have uh, you know, treatment of the SIBO first before anything works? Well, that's the kind of concept that I've got in my own mind, that there is a pattern of SIBO which is similar to what happens in reflux disease in the, in the upper GI tract.
0: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. Something you've um, talked about in a presentation, which I, um, when I was doing research for this interview, I found online. It's amazing what you can find online. And you talked about anal vomiting. Is that part of this process? You're talking about the reflux going back up into the small bowel, but what, what does anal vomiting <laughs> this, this
1: mean?
0: Was, <laughs> no, this is a great term. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, we've come up with things like cecal belching and secoparesis, and it's just trying to help people understand that this process is a bit like what happens in the upper gut. So in the upper gut, if the stomach doesn't empty, that's gastroparesis. And at a certain point, then people will vomit um, and regurgitate. And this is particularly common in in diabetics. Um, And for me, diarrhea is what you get when you get gastroenteritis, or if you have bile acid malabsorption. So you get this watery, undigested food coming out. And, And when people have these loose bowel motions, uh, associated with, um, you know, bloating and distension, it tends to be, and I don't want to be too graphic here, but more like a hot, frothy stool that that is it's more akin to this second stomach saying, I can't handle this anymore. I'm going to get rid of it and, and, and ejecting it in a style similar to vomiting in the upper GI tract, as opposed to diarrhea, which, you know, for those people who've been away to Thailand or Cambodia or somewhere and had just pure water coming out of the, the 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 anal canal, then I think it's just different. So I was just trying to get across this idea that the two processes are different. This idea of diarrhea predominant IBS um I don't think in a lot of cases that that it is diarrhea as we know it. It will be in some, I think it's just to try and differentiate the two processes. So it's a little bit of fun on my part, but um it does raise a few eyebrows.
0: <laughs> I think it's uh, it's really a great way to think about what is actually happening and, and I think that's been a very great um, explanation. A question I've got for you just around the secum, given that the uh, appendix comes off of it, have you, what's your theory around um, the role of the appendix and also what happens to those of us, myself included, that um, have had appendicitis and ended up with our appendix removed, um, and I don't know if there's ever been a study done around the correlation between people with appendicitis, appendicitis, and appendectomies and SIBO. Uh, but I know um, just through discussions with people, so many people that have pe- SIBO that I have spoken to, and obviously it's a very small sample size in the whole scheme of the world. Um, but that they've also, they've had um, issues with appendix and and now have SIBO. Do you have any um, thoughts on correlation with the two?
1: Well, if I take a step back, we did a really cool study um, a few years ago. Um, One of my surgical friends noted that the appendix is very much, looks like a a, a piece of, um, if you excuse the expression, rat colon. So a lot of the basic research that's been done um, is based on animal research. And we always wanted to move towards human models. But if you look at the appendix, Um, It it has its own, obviously, blood supply, nerve supply, and it gets taken out quite a lot. And what we managed to do at the Royal London with uh, Charlie Knowles was to show that we could, in these appendix that have been taken out, that you could keep them um, and, and measure nerve function and look at all sorts of different things using this tissue. And it kind of brought it home that even though it seems to be a redundant organ, it still has all of the things in it that, that would make it function as a normal part of the bowel. So it's it's there, obviously, for a reason. Otherwise, we would have got rid of it um, from an evolutionary standpoint. But what it does in relation to SIBO is, is uncertain. There are people who think it's a kind of repository of normal gut flora, um, and that after you have had antibiotics or an infection or whatever, that... that the bacteria that remain in the appendix then repopulate the the bowel and go from there. But I'm not certain that's been proven. Um, So I'm not really doing a very good job of answering your question. I think much more needs to be done, but I think there is quite a lot of um, move now to think of non-surgical ways to treat appendicitis rather than just whipping it out at the first sign of trouble. Um, And I saw an article about that the other day. So I think my kind of long-winded answer is that it's there for a reason. It may be beneficial to have it, but obviously you don't want it to to burst and cause peritonitis and, and life-threatening conditions. So I think much more work needs to be done to try and understand its role.
0: Mm, I, I agree. And it's interesting. I, I also read uh, that um, theory that it was a, um, a place for excess or bacteria to be housed and that it would repopulate the bacteria if it was depleted Um and I can understand that. And I did wonder myself, I thought, gosh, I wonder if that's perhaps what's happened to me. My appendix, I was told I had a grumbling appendix uh, and it had flared up and off, on and off over over the years. From when I was quite a young kid, um, I remember having some pretty gruff doctors <laughs> putting their fingers up my bottom to try and uh, – Feel around for my appendix and thinking, oh my gosh, this is pretty unpleasant. Um, until finally my appendix had had enough and it decided it needed to come out. And and unfortunately, unfortunately for me, it, um, it my my tip my symptoms were atypical, and so they didn't immediately operate. And by the time that they got me onto the operating table, it was rupturing, and I was pretty unwell for quite some time. I. Was, had been traveling for work and was stuck away from home and my poor mum had to fly up and look after me. But one of the things that I believe that that operation left me with, despite saving my life because I would have been in a very poorly state if it had stayed in, was they'd cut me open pretty quickly because they realized things weren't going so well. And I am pretty certain I've got some adhesions in my gut area because I've had that operation and I've had a couple of other operations for endometriosis. And so you then think about, well, uh, you know, we're we're saving a life, but what else, what are we leaving the person with that perhaps might provide future complications?
1: Yeah. And there's a great um, talk by Peter Payne on our website from our IBS roadshow uh, that talks about the harm that surgery does. And particularly in IBS patients that have prolonged issues who are you know probably quite rightly convinced that there is an issue that can be resolved with surgery because they they are quite desperate. that surgery um, you know very rarely helps in these um, in these disorders and and more often than not makes things worse Uh, and I would encourage your listeners to to watch Peter's talk um, on the website uh, because it's really really very sensible. And he's just presented an update on that recently um, to our, our trainees, uh, showing that that really is the case. So, I mean, if you're desperate and you think there must be some kind of blockage or, or, or some issue, then you know, having surgery is usually not the issue if all the imaging studies have shown that, that you know, there aren't any um, structural abnormalities. So, that would be a very strong warning: is that if, if a functional diagnosis has been made, then. Don't go and see a
0: surgeon. And I think um, something that I wish my younger self had known, um, and I know now, but when I was diagnosed with endometriosis and I had reasonably bad endo, I was told that I would be on the um, once a year circuit for surgery. And I had three surgeries, I think it was, for my endometriosis before coming across a, a wonderful Um, physician actually in London, uh, who was a much more holistic approach um, to her patients. And we started looking at the function of my gut, food intolerances and all the rest. And I haven't had an operation since. But what was never talked to me, um, and I've talked about this with other um, endo patients, was that at no point did anyone say, okay, so we're going to go in and laser you for your endo but the risk is that we may cause some adhesions which may uh, be problematic for you in the future. So I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that um, I think that uh, we need to tread with caution before opening ourselves up and and what I am really interested in is that since healing my gut and getting my gut into a much better state my endometriosis is virtually non-existent so I haven't had to have another surgery which is wonderful for that.
1: Yeah and and that's what we do as physiologists I mean going back to um, gastroesophageal reflux there's a proportion of patients who describe reflux symptoms that actually are due to SIBO and I've convinced many of the people who refer to us now that if we check for SIBO as well as for reflux, then there's a proportion of patients, if you treat the gut issue, then their reflux symptoms go away and they don't need surgery. And, uh, you know, surgeons are sensible chaps most of the time, and and ladies, and they they don't want to have patients where they have bad outcomes. So by, um, you know, using the tests that we have to really um, define what's going on in patients pre-operatively, quite often you can prevent unnecessary surgery, but also point, people in the right direction who will benefit from it. So I think that's why it's a real team effort in what we do.
0: Let's talk about testing. Um, What are the testing um, practices that are generally used in the UK to test for SIBO?
1: Now this causes quite a lot of contention. Um, There are lots of people who don't believe in SIBO. Um, There's an issue around getting the right treatment for SIBO and we're up against it. But fortunately the US guys have published a, a consensus document talking about how to try and um, standardize the testing and interpretation of SIBO. And that's one of the reasons I went out to the um, Cedar sinai just to go through that so I could come back and, and uh, you know discuss it with my colleagues in the UK. So many people think breath testing is, is quite unreliable. And it's not certain whether this is due to the way people do it. Or actually, it's just a natural variation in the way things move through the gut. So glucose has been um, used to look for SIBO uh, because glucose is quite sensitive. If it picks up bacteria in the proximal duodenum and it's positive, then it's a you know it's a strongly positive test. But of course, the SIBO may be further down the small bowel. And therefore, you will get a false negative in many patients because the issue isn't in the first few feet of duodenum. So we always tend to use lactulose um, and lactulose is non-digestible. So wherever it meets bacteria in the bowel, then the bacteria will start to break it down, produce gases, and this comes out through your breath and we can pick that up. So the contention around that is, well, how do you know where the lactulose is? So when you start to see a rise in gas, is that due to bacteria in the small bowel or is it in the colon? And I think like all of these things, you have to be a little bit pragmatic. Um, we tend to be quite conservative in how we measure SIBO. So we look for a rise of gas levels of about 10 parts per million within about 60 minutes of ingesting the substrate. And then we try and correlate that with symptoms. So not only do we see it as a physiological test, we see it as a provocation test. So if you can give somebody um, you know, a couple of teaspoons of sugar and produce most of their symptoms and pick up a physiological change, we think that's pretty good in terms of a positive test. And then of course you can treat and then retest and see how symptoms improve. Um, So that is the probably the easiest way that we can look at SIBO. You can actually put a camera down um, into the small bowel and take aspirates and then measure how much bacteria um, are in that region. But obviously this is very invasive, it's difficult to get down to the distal small bowel and uh, there are some problems with collection. So I don't really think That is always an answer um, unless you are having real problems in treating the SIBO and you need to identify exactly what kind of bacterial organism is in there. So at the moment for SIBO testing, we recommend using lactulose. We agree with the methods used in the US. We think that their um, cutoff points for uh, positivity are a little bit bold in that they look at 20 parts per million within 90 minutes and I think for a lot of those patients, the, um, the lactulose might be in the colon, but um, as they, they stated in the US, this is a starting point, and then allows us all to collect data in the same way, so we can make comparisons across groups and then develop the model further as time goes on.
0: And what about the IBS check test, which uh, um, is very interesting? I think to be looking at the um, what's happening in the blood with um, with people that have been exposed to food poisoning.
1: Well, I was very fortunate that just as we were um, putting our final ethics submission in for this um, trial in 50 IBS patients, I became aware of IBS check. So I quickly wrote it into the protocol and we've been able to look at uh, in quite great detail um, how the IBS check works. So we've got data back from about 50 IBS patients, about 25% of them were positive for the antibodies in, in IBS check. And what this is picking up is those people that have had an infectious event so they've had a, a, an episode of gastroenteritis and this is set up a, a level of autoimmunity and set up some antibody production in um, in those people that seem to um, have some effects on motility so um, the antibodies um, tend to interfere with ICC cells which control motility in the distal small bowel and I think the theory, and this is an evolving theory, is that it almost changes the small bowel to make you more likely to get future gastroenteritis events. So it puts you in a profile that's more beneficial to the bacteria that you would normally clear. And, you know, again, some of this is anecdotal now coming from, from my visit to the States that the antivinculin, in particular antibodies, the higher they are, then the worse the gut motility seems to be and that you need more uh, intensive treatment to try and get those antibody levels down to get the gut motility back to normal. Um, And certainly from our experience post-trial, that those patients that had a positive IBS check have seemed to be uh, responded more poorly to antibiotic treatment. And and have had to have either different courses or add on something like a prokinetic that that helps the clearance through the small bowel. So it's an evolving area, it's only, Important in a proportion of IBS patients, but it does give a um, an organic cause to the ongoing symptoms, and it may be a guide to have more intensive treatment or or more uh, investigation to try and understand what's happening in the bowel. So I think it uh, is going to be an important tool in our armoury going forward.
0: I had a an email from a woman in the uk not that long ago who was at her wits end um she had been to her doctor who had said i do not believe in SIBO it does not exist what's your advice to anyone listening who might be in that state where they're being told this condition that you're telling me about is not real uh and go away (laughs) what's your advice for them
1: get another doctor (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is contentious, and I think this is this is uh, like I said before a bit of a perfect storm in that there's a lack of education. There's um, a few negative studies out there that, that question the methodology to um, examine SIBO. Um, the treatments aren't readily available. You know, doctors don't really want to put people on a rotating course of, of broad spectrum antibiotics to treat this because of all the other problems that might occur. But you've only got to look at the uh, the data from the big target trials with Rifaximin in, in the States to show that it does work in a proportion of patients. So I think that the, the methodology to identify SIBO and the correlation between a positive diagnosis and a positive outcome of treatment needs to be documented further. One of the slightly disappointing things about the, the target trial was that the breath test data was not used to predict the outcome of, of the, um, the, tr- the treatment and I think that would have given a bit more confidence uh, around the two and I think that's something that we're going to try and address going forward but you know if I take there's a there's a really nice young chap on our clinical trial who he'd been away he'd got gastroenteritis he'd come back and he had terrible symptoms and we tested him twice we did smart pill on him as part of the trial um, he had a negative IBS check, but he had a positive SIBO check. And he managed to convince his GP to give him a course of Rifaximin and I saw him a few months later and he just shook my hand in the street and said, it's a miracle, I can eat what I want again. And that's the kind of you know, happy story that, that you, you want um, in patients. And you can do post te- uh, post-treatment breath tests to prove that the SIBO is gone or not. So it's about building confidence um, and getting the right treatment. What we're setting up in London and in Manchester is a kind of joined-up pathway where we um, have what I'll call um, friendly gastroenterologists who believe in in the problem. Uh, We have the -the state-of-the-art testing so we can provide objectivity for that. We work closely with uh, dieticians so that um, post-treatment we can implement dietary strategies to try and uh, retain remission of, of the SIBO and it's up to us now to provide the outcome data um, over a period of time that will help the conventional medical community buy into this and I think the last piece for the UK is to try and convince the, um, the drug company um, that make rifaximin to make it a little bit more accessible in the UK and do the trials to get it registered as it's done in the States I mean, anecdotally, uh, one of the gastroenterologists I saw in in America said that since rifaximin's been brought into primary care, then referrals for IBS to secondary care in his practice have gone down by about 60%. You can imagine what a massive cost saving that would be to the NHS. So I think there's a real need to push this forward on many levels, and uh, we're, we're doing our best to provide the infrastructure to do that.
0: Can you quickly talk about the types of treatment options that are available in the UK for SIBO? Okay,
1: so the pathway that we uh, work with, with anyone coming into the, the, the clinic, uh, the advice that we give is, you know, first of all, direct them towards self-help strategies. So things that are on, available from the IBS network and, and things like the uh, low FODMAP app on the Manash University, you know, first, a lot of people will be able to, to manage their, their IBS type symptoms themselves. <clears throat> the next step that's recommended in the NICE guidelines is to go and see a dietitian and try and do a, a you know, a directed dietary intervention to try and reduce your symptoms to a level where you, um, you know, you won't need further treatment. Um, but what we found and studies in, in the States have shown that if you have SIBO, then none of the diets work. You have to treat it. Um, and in the private sector, then it's a little bit more easy for for. People to get their heads around um, paying for a prescription for something like rifaximin which is obviously the best treatment um, out there because of the mechanism of how the drug works that it only really works within a small bowel it shouldn't affect any of the colonic microflora it's not systemically absorbed Um, so that's that's where we would go next unfortunately if you are in the NHS then your GP is unlikely to want to give you a 300 pound treatment Um, And that's where the problem, I think, occurs. We can make a firm diagnosis, but then which antibiotic can be used? So some people use Augmentin or Doxycycline or Metronizadol, and it becomes a little bit more um, hit and miss around that treatment. Um, We have had some contact with uh, some nutritionists who've used the uh, antimicrobial herbal supplements. some success in some people, but these are still antibiotics as such. So you could still get potential resistance to these uh, uh, these these substances. So the treatment at present is one of the major concerns. Uh, if you can't get access to rifaximin, what do you do? And if you've exhausted all your dietary plans, the elemental diet has been used, um, but again, I don't think that really treats SIBO very well. I think it it, it reduces the colonic. Uh, Profile more than it would do the SIBO. So I think that's the bit that we need to really work on going forward is to try and rationalize the treatment pathway to make it more convincing for doctors in general practice.
0: And one of my um, questions to myself that I often wonder about uh, SIBO is, and particularly when we've talked about the function of the gut from top to bottom. If one of the reasons or if the primary reason for a person developing SIBO is that the motility of the gut has slowed right down uh, and it has allowed this backwash of bacteria to come up, could it then be reversed if the motility is um, improved uh and you're not doing anything to, to reduce those numbers through, say, taking rifaximum or herbal antibiotics. Um, and I don't know if you know the answer to that or if there is an answer to that, but I often think, could we just be reversing it if we just got our motility working better again?
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And one of the reasons we use the linacletide, which is a, a kind of colonic um, prokinetic, uh, or, or at least it, it, you know, it induces more bowel movements to, to clear things, uh, in our trial was was to see that. Um, we don't think we were powered sufficiently to to get the answer for that and SIBO and did complicate things. But certainly um, the consensus in, in the States is that if um, you can, first of all, do two things. One is to give yourself um, the best chance of your migrating motor complexes to work. So that is to have a meal and then wait for several hours Before eating again if you snack all the time then you're never going to get your natural clearance um, mechanisms working. So to leave longer periods between your meals to allow your bowel to go into its fasting rhythm and clear things through more more accurately. Second thing would be to reduce um, these highly fermentable or hard to digest foods so you put less stress on the, the proximal colon so you're less likely to get reflux through. And then you can add on a prokinetic such as uh, procalopride, which um, works through the serotonin system to, uh, you know, gently help clear things through the bowel more efficiently. Um, so all of those things should help to contribute and, and help your uh, body's natural clearance um, mechanisms to help clear the SIBO.
0: mm. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I've often thought that. And I know that uh, particularly those people that have been around, um, they've been dealing with SIBO for a long time and the antibiotic or herbal treatments aren't aren't seemingly being overly effective. I think that they often get to that point where they think, well, what else is there? What else should I be doing? Um, because these treatments aren't really working, my numbers aren't really dropping dropping down. What What would you do with a patient if they were in that state where um, the treatment doesn't seem to be working?
1: That's a difficult question. Um, you know, these these are patients that usually need maybe more detailed investigation to see if there's a, a structural reason why their SIBO is persisting, um, you know, to, to see if there's any um, obstruction or uh, sort of diverticular or, or some other reason why it's, it's persisting. Um, I, you know, like with any condition, you're not always going to get a 100% um, um, cure rate for it. And it's just managing through things like diet and uh, medicines to try and reduce the symptoms to a point where they become manageable. Um, so there's, there's never going to be an absolute perfect cure for everybody. Um, but I think the understanding that we're developing now of how to reduce symptoms and maybe to eat foods that reduce um, the attractiveness of the bacteria to, to colonize the small bowel and things like that. And, and things that you've discussed on your, uh, you know, your books and your website that can help to sort of maintain a level of symptoms that are manageable for patients um, is, is the only option we have at the moment.
0: Mm. And my final thing that I'd like to talk about, because I think it's quite um, important, is non-cardiac chest pain and its correlation with gut health. And I know myself, I have experienced a lot of chest pain in the past. Um, This is all pre-SIBO diagnosis. And I used to think, oh my gosh, I'm having a heart attack or I my grandfather had um, heart disease and had had tr- three um, bypasses, had had three heart attacks. He was, you know, we, we grew up with a very strong awareness around cardiac issues. And so when you have these very strong chest pains, it's quite natural, I think, to think something's wrong with my heart. <laughs> but now that my gut is in a much better state, I just don't get that pain. Can you talk about what that is and and why it can be correlated to the gut
1: so this is the first half of my academic career so my PhD was on non-cardiac chest pain and developing new tools to investigate the mechanisms of it so if we start with acid reflux then um, we developed a model where you we put acid into the esophagus and showed that even small amounts of acid can sensitize the nerves in the esophagus for up to five or six hours and if you repeat the acid infusion, then you get a bigger um, uh, sensitization effect. So certainly in a proportion of patients, um, acid reflux is to blame. Uh, acid is really um, Stomach acid is really pernicious stuff. And if you continually bathe the esophagus in it, it will make it um, uh, too sensitive. And because the esophagus shares many of the same nerves as the heart, then pain is often referred to structures similar to where you would you would get heart pain. And we've blown balloons up in ourselves and done brain imaging studies to show all of this and, and actually felt those sensations and that kind of panicky sensation that you get when you get pain in your esophagus. So the treatments um, for that are, are potentially antacid therapy and we showed that you could reverse the sensitization by reducing the amount of acid exposure. So that's kind of one cause for it. But there are a proportion of patients who where actually the sensitizing stimulus may come from different parts of the bowel. So one of the experiments we did was to put um, capsaicin, which is the pungent ingredient of chili, into the small bowel and then measure pain thresholds in the esophagus and showed that by sensitizing one region of the bowel, you could actually um, cause increased pain sensitivity in the esophagus, which was away from the sensitizing stimulus. And that's because the way the spinal nerves from the gut Uh, go into the spinal cord, they spread out, they fan out, and an injury to one part of the gut can make another part of the gut sensitive. So there's another mechanism. And you can use, um, I guess, kind of gut specific painkillers to try and reduce that sensitivity. None of them are are, are perfect, but um, certainly things like tricyclic antidepressants used at very low doses or SSRIs, SRNIs can be used over short term to try and reduce gut sensitivity in those regions. And the final cause of non-cardiac chest pain would be um, abnormalities in gut motility. So um, are you, have you got an an obstruction in the esophagus that's causing uh, restriction to flow or are you getting spasm in that region? Um, And patients who take opioid medication, for example, often get discoordinated esophageal contractions and spasm. um, So it could be a motility problem as well. So there were the three um, main areas, acid reflux, gut sensitivity and motility issues that, that can cause non-cardiac chest pain.
0: Can you tell me um, what kind of pain is common or, or the, the type of pain that people might um, feel uh, if they've got uh, this non-cardiac um, gut pain? Oh, chest pain. Sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the, the the pain itself kind of escalates. So it might start off as a, a kind of dull ache or a kind of burning sensation in the chest, but as it becomes more severe, the the gut doesn't uh, the esophagus doesn't have many nerves of its own, so it starts to borrow nerves from uh, surrounding regions, and this is the referred pain aspect. So it starts to spread across the chest. It can go into the back. It can go into the shoulders. Up into the jaw. And the more intense and more prolonged it becomes, then the more uh, structures it refers to. So the skin can become sensitive, uh, and it really is a very worrying pain. Having had it done experimentally to me, it's a kind of inescapable pain that then also activates the autonomic nervous system. So you begin to uh, go pale, you might sweat, um, and, and you know really feel quite unwell. Um, and you know it's very similar to what you would feel with um, a heart attack, but obviously without the Um, serious consequences of a heart attack. And that's why most patients will go for an ECG just to be reassured. And and that's what you should do to make sure there isn't a cardiac reason for it. Uh, And then once that's been excluded, then there are tests that you can do, such as esophageal manometry, reflux testing, uh, you know, to try and find out the underlying cause of it.
0: I used to have pain that would spread across my back. Um, It felt like my shoulder blades were... I don't know, made of hot pokers and there would be other types of pain that I would often feel where it felt like uh, something was constricting my lungs and my heart. And if only I could breathe out far enough, it would pop it, but it was excruciating to do it. And I'd end up doing these very short, shallow breaths, which does not help you to remain calm at all. And the many times that I'd have Pain searing up into my jaw um, or down my arm, which you know you you're, you're told if it's pain coming down your arm, then that could be very much a heart attack. Uh, but all of that has stopped since clearing up my SIBO, um, and I did do what you said that many patients do: is I've gone and had an ECG done. I've even worn a, a monitor for twenty four hours uh, because I was adamant that there was something wrong with my heart, and it came back perfect (laughs) so my little heart's fine it was just all this other pain that was being caused i'm sure by um my intestinal system
1: yeah and and you know it's a bit like appendicitis it starts off on the wrong side because that's where the appendix develops from a kind of embryological point of view you only really feel it where your appendix is when the pain is referred to the skin above it so the gut is is it's a strange um, sort of organism within us uh, and it, it basically has to give you a non-specific alarm signal when something is wrong, to change your behaviour, to stop you eating, to you know help you help you rest, because you can't escape from the pain. Like you can move your hand away from a hot object, so the gut is trying to tell you that something's wrong, and it uses this non-specific alarm system, which um, is, it can be quite frightening.
0: It can be. And that's a really great description of it. Dr. Anthony Hobson, it's been so wonderful having you on the Healthy Gut podcast today. If people would like to connect with you, what's the best place for them to, uh, to reach out and connect with you?
1: So we've got um, a website, which is thefunctionalgutclinic.com. And there's um, <clears throat> you know, contact numbers and request forms and things like that on the website to get in touch with us. That would be the easiest way to do it. And uh, what we tend to do is then help people, point them in the right direction of, uh, you know, a good gastroenterologist or colorectal surgeon or uh, whoever is the most appropriate. Um, And then we work as a team with those doctors to try and find out exactly what's wrong and and how we can help them. So that would be the best way to get in touch with us.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sparing your time to come onto the Healthy Gut Podcast today.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you for asking.
0: I hope you enjoyed episode 32 with Dr. Anthony Hobson. If you would like to get the show notes or any of the links mentioned in today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash functional health. And that's all one word. If you would like to keep up to date with my US tour events, make sure you head to thehealthygut.co forward slash events. And I'll be updating that page every single week as details of my events. Become finalized. So make sure you keep checking that page to see whether I will be coming to your city. And if you would like to grab a copy of the US edition of the cookbooks, head to SIBOCookBooks.com. And for anyone living in the US or Canada, you can also get a printed edition of the US cookbooks sent to you locally, which means you'll only be paying local postage, which is super exciting. So those books are now available to pre-order and you can get your hands on a copy straight off the press. So head to sibocookbooks.com to order a copy. I love hearing your feedback so make sure you leave a rating and review in iTunes and if you have found this episode to be helpful don't forget to share it with your friends. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. Just look for us under The Healthy Gut. Coming up on next week's show, we're joined by Alyssa Tate and we're talking all about visceral mobilisation and adhesions. It's a topic that is very interesting to me as I believe that I am full of adhesions. So I hope you find that interesting too on next week's show of the Healthy Gut Podcast. You've been listening to The Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about The Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes All you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening.